3: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: And there we are, after many hours of delay at the border, several days of travel, Dom Nichols and I are here, in Ukraine.
2: I'm Sophie Coe, and this is Ukraine, the latest. It's Monday, the 25th of July, day 152, and today is a very special episode In fact, it's going to be a very special week. On Sunday, our usual host, David Knowles, and our defence and security editor, Dom Nichols, travelled to Poland. And today they made their way across the border into Ukraine to report from the ground.
3: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure.
1: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're
3: Ukrainians.
2: Over the next seven days, we'll be hearing from David and Dom as they meet prominent Ukrainian politicians, visit some significant locations of the war so far, and speak to those who are experiencing the struggle firsthand to hear their stories. We begin with David's first report from the Polish city of Warsaw, which sits 400 miles from the Ukrainian border.
1: Hi everyone, it's David Knowles from Ukraine, the latest here. You can probably hear that I'm not actually in the studio in London at the moment. In fact, earlier today, I was in the old town of Warsaw, the capital of Poland, on our journey east to Ukraine. The old town, I was in the main square, had a little wander about. It's an absolutely beautiful place on a summer's evening. There are children's entertainers, there are balloon sellers, there's ice cream stalls, the restaurants and the bars are packed, and it's just an incredibly beautiful place with the sky blue as anything overhead. There's just two observations and reflections, neither original but potentially worth bearing in mind that I wanted to bring up. One is that as I was sitting there in the square, looking around, all of the buildings are absolutely beautiful. None of them are the same color in the Old Town. There'll be a blue one followed by something in terracotta, followed by something in a more sandy color, all about four or five stories high. But the crucial thing to remember about Warsaw's old town is that most of it isn't actually quite literally that old. It was rebuilt in the 1950s, after the Second World War. Around 85% of its buildings were destroyed first by the Nazi war machine and then by the Red Army as it pushed west towards Germany. So in the 50s, the Warsaw natives came together and built their old town again from old photos and any architectural plans they could salvage. It was an act of supreme love for the city they held so dear. And the result now, 70 years on, is spellbinding. And I think that's interesting for two reasons. First is that we know that the Central European states have been huge supporters of Ukraine during this war. So Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia have sent a lot of military material and helped Ukraine a lot. In Central Europe, it's been the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and of course Poland, who have taken in more Ukrainian refugees than anywhere else in Europe. Further north, Finland and Sweden, have joined NATO, or joining NATO. And being in Warsaw's old town sort of shows you why. The Poles have experience of what Russian occupation looked like. Their cities were ruined. As I said, Warsaw's old town lost 85% of its buildings. And until 1991, with the the end of the Soviet Union, it was, in many ways, an occupied country. So Poles look east... And they think that could be us, and certainly, until very recently, within living memory, it was us. So being here really does give you that sense, which is potentially not palpable if you're like me from Western Europe. Of course, the United Kingdom has its own stories of the Second World War, and it does live in popular imagination. But London was bombed, of course, but it was never occupied. The other thing, I think, which is an interesting thing to bear in mind, is that being a Reconstruction, there's something, of course... Poles would love their old city back, but that's quite literally impossible. But what they have, what they've built is something incredibly beautiful. And when you look at the Ukraine war, we know that Ukrainian cities, I'm thinking in particular of Mariupol, being raised to the ground in many cases, in many areas by Russian artillery. In the future, when the war is over, these places will be rebuilt. And if it's the Ukrainians doing the rebuilding, then the old town of Warsaw offers a model for this. Maybe people won't want to recreate exactly what was there, maybe they'll feel that you can't recreate the past, no matter how accurately you do it. But there is a way, Poland and Warsaw has shown that way. So I just thought those are two interesting things potentially to to bear in mind. So I'm recording this in my hotel room uh, just down the road from Warsaw's airport. Uh, Dominic Nichols is on his way in, Dominic Nichols the Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, has been off for two weeks. He's joining me in the hotel before the long drive to the border and then to Kyiv tomorrow.
2: This afternoon, Francis Durnley, assistant comment editor at The Telegraph, and I caught up with Dom and David live as they crossed the border into Ukraine. Before our regular updates, here's what they had to say on the first 24 hours of their trip. They were pulled over on the side of the road just after Ukrainian customs, so forgive the slightly crackly phone line.
0: Hi, Sophie. Hi, everybody. We're actually just a bit further than the border now. We are just outside the town of Vladimir in the west of Ukraine. It, t- it took about four or five hours to cross the border. There were numerous bureaucratic issues, but we've, we've dealt with them over. You're right, we flew into uh, Warsaw yesterday. I came in the afternoon, Dom came in the evening, and we've been driving pretty much ever since. We're just, just to paint you a little picture, we're just on the side of the road now outside Vladimir. There's a field of wheat to my right. It's a beautiful sunny day here in the west of Ukraine, with clouds scudding overhead. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'll pass the phone over to Dom quickly. Dom, to tell everybody what our experience of, of the Ukrainian border is. Yeah, thanks, David. And hi, everybody. It's been, um,
4: yeah, boringly bureaucratic, right? Uh, we were warned of, of various delays that, that could happen and uh, various hold-ups, and they all, they all came to pass. All the ducks were in a row, and the ducks weren't going anywhere. So we, uh, yeah, we had, a, had a lot of, of talk getting over the We've ended up basically having to ditch our hire car, hitchhike across the border, and now try and make our way to Key. So we've made, we've made it across. We're going to spend a week here. I've got a number of meetings lined up, a number of interviews with senior military and political figures. I don't want to say anything just yet because yeah, as is the way of these things, some will fall, fall out of bed at the last minute. Others will all come good. So uh, there should be some good, uh, some good folk there to talk to about the the situation now and in the and in the future. And David is going to be catching up with uh, with some of the some of the folk that we've been chatting to over the last few months and getting an update here in Ukraine. It's all very well us sitting in London. We've been very lucky to have a number of number of Ukrainian voices over the last few months telling us exactly how it is, rather than just just being a sort of Western media that want us uh, happy to sit in our in our country. But but yeah, we thought we'd better come here. We can't do this. Do this uh, Twitter Space podcast without without coming here, meeting the people that we're talking to. So uh, yeah, it's going to be a busy week. We should be uh, we should be in in Kiev before the eleven pm curfew.
2: Amazing! And wh- you flew into Warsaw yesterday. I wondered if you two could give us a sense of what the feeling towards the war was like there and w- what the city was like.
0: Well, first of all, let's just say that you know we are only here a week, so we're going to. It's going to be difficult for us to do mo- more than scratch the surface i mean we'll do our absolute best talk to as many people as possible yeah i was it Warsaw yesterday i arrived mid-afternoon and um, went over to the old town i've been there once before as a sort of sprightly 15 year old and it was it was great to go back it's it's a wonderful beautiful city in terms of the war, there, there are sort of signs everywhere i think i mean you can see the ukrainian flags in the window there were children's entertainers uh, dressed as sort of giant furry animals who are collecting collecting money with a polish flag and a ukrainian flag so there there are sort of if you sort of scratched it, there are, there are signs that, of, of what's happening in the East and how that's affecting Polish society.
3: Glad to hear you've both made it safely. I know we've been sending a few uh, messages to your way and back and forth this morning. Just sort of thinking ahead to the drive to Kiev, how long is that going to, to take and what do you expect to see on the way?
0: Well, I feel quite guilty because I, I don't drive. Um, so <laughs> I'll be looking out the window and, and, and looking at it just to get a sense of the country, really, to get a sense of how Especially in the West, how how much the war is, is impacting on what we see what we see military convoys, what we see the checkpoints. I think it's about what is it though. I think it's about six hours, five hours from now. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So we should get there before before the curfew in the evening. And yes, yeah, it's, it's going to be a very long drive. It's been a very long day. We, we woke up at six o'clock in the morning already, so we're pretty pretty shattered.
2: And I was wondering if one of you could give me a sense of what it was like, the atmosphere was like at the border. We saw those photos in the in the early days of it looking very, very hectic, hordes of people trying to go through gates. What was the atmosphere there now?
0: Well, when we first tried to get across, it was relatively quiet. That's when we were told, no, no, sorry, sorry, guys, you can't take that car across. We had to sort of go back and think again. It was very quiet. Then when we came back and tried to cross on foot, it's got a lot busier. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a bus service that goes across. There's quite a few Poles and Ukrainians going back and forth. Um, it, was, it was very, I mean, the lines were incredibly long. It's a very, very hot day here in the west of ukraine and so you did feel slightly sorry for, for the drivers and, and everybody waiting
2: and when you landed in poland i know yesterday that you saw a lot of um well a certain amount of anti-russian wares for sale david i wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that
0: sure yes yeah. so these are the, the um anti-putin toilet rolls that are on sale at some, some of the street stalls in in uh warsaw actually chatting to uh one of our Ukrainian friends, who told us that um, actually these these things these, these Putin bog rolls, and it's this picture of Fafnir Putin on the front, uh, and it um, tells Putin, let's say, where to go, I wouldn't we'll use that language, but you know, it tells Putin where to go. That's actually been on sale in, in Ukraine for a while. It's an old thing. It's, it was interesting seeing that, again, come to the surface in, in Warsaw, that, you know, in terms of what's being sold to tourists. It's not just hats and pins and so on and so forth. It's, it's also this very anti-Putin um, paraphernalia as well.
2: Thanks, David. And just one more for you, Dom, from me. I know that you've had two weeks away from the podcast and I'm sure you're all caught up in being very much in the situation at the moment rather than outside of it. But was there anything on the strategic side of things that you wanted to mention today?
4: Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, the the focus of many of my questions for the, the people I'm going to be speaking to this week will be where we are in the war. and are we about to see Europe's biggest ever Jenga competition? So what I mean by that, the war at the moment is, is somewhat calcified in the east and the north. Donbass is, is really not moving much at all, partly because of the, the long-range fires, mainly HIMARS and other MLRS delivered from the, from the Ukrainians, are uh, uh, destroying fuel dumps, ammo dumps, command and control nodes, and, and long-range artillery pieces themselves in the east. So Donbass is not really doing much. Down in the Kurzon in the region, there have been a number of uh, limited counterattacks from Ukraine. And as I said, a bit, a bit like Jenga, when you sort of have to have to nudge around and find which of the blocks are rock solid and which are about to give, and you can sort of then, then, then sort of tickle those ones out. I think that's about, I think that's going to happen soon, if not it already started in the Kurzon region. I think the Ukrainian counterattacks are looking for those points of weakness. They are are looking for the areas of Russian, uh, the Russian military footprint that are, that are least likely to be able to hold its ground and they will reinforce that success. You don't, in military terms, you don't reinforce failure, you reinforce success. So you keep going and you, and you back the, the axis that's having the most success. So I think we're about to see a lot of movement in the south. We've, we've seen some preparatory strikes in the south. We think Heimar delivered on the bridges that are cutting the only portion of the Russian military force to be north and west of the Dnipro River. Um, so the bridge, the bridges there have been under attack, they haven't dropped the bridges, but they don't really need to. They just need to put enough holes in them such that they are not viable for very heavy logistic vehicles and and warfighting vehicles. so so they 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 need to deny those bridges and uh, deny the use of those bridges for the Russian military whilst leaving them open for civilian traffic that want to get out and also for their own traffic, Ukraine's own traffic when they um hopefully move in to retake those areas. So I think there's been some preparatory strikes in the south, and I think we're about to see a lot more of this sort of military jenga, And and it does look like Ukrainian tactics or Ukrainian strategy seems to have been to, to hold and bleed the Russian military in the east and then prepare for a, for a general advance in the south. But that's, that's what I think it looks like, and that's what I'll be asking the various folks that I'll be meeting this week.
3: If I could just ask as well Dom there's obviously been a lot of conversation in recent days around this grain deal just wondering what your general thoughts are on, on it being signed and then sort of some suggestions perhaps that it's maybe have already been broken by the russians what do you think is the strategic significance of that well
4: we've we've talked about it for a long time and it, and the difficulty was that the, the whole grain situation can only happen with with russia's permission and it's it's horrible I hate using the word permission because that it allows Russia a vote that they that they don't have the right to hold. But I mean that's the situation. So Russia will only allow this for for some quo themselves and we think they're going to be asking for sanctions relief or, or some something else. This could also be just buying time in a in a geostrategic point of view. So what the big weakness at the moment or the big vulnerability for Ukraine is the is the international support helping and supplying President Zelensky's Government, so anything that can be used to sort of chip away at that. So yes, there's a grain deal. No, there's not. Yes, we're going to save the world. No, we're not. It all, it all just it adds to the international pressure on Zelensky. So I think that's what Russia have done. They've they've been brought finally to the table, and now they, then they fired weapons, they fired missiles into into Odessa, saying that they were well. First of all, they denied it, didn't they? And then they said, oh no, actually we were going for a military target. So all all the, the usual old waffle, and then we get Sergei Lavrov, foreign ministry, the foreign minister. Saying that they're going to expand the war aims and, and and push further further across to the south, and I mean, who knows what they're just sort of making it up as they go along on, on that front. But I think in terms of the grain, I think this is this is all Russian tactics, and we we should expect more of these of these strikes. They've used it once as excuse that they are they were attacking a military target, you know, regardless of where the largely unguided caliber missiles end up. They are saying that they are firing a military targets. So they just don't care where these things land. So I think we're going to see more of this, and and has been weaponized it will continue to be this this might be the start of, the, of a solution but it's by no means there yet and we've still got all the issues of demining to get the uh, the freighters in and out of Odessa and then we've got to talk about the, that, that really difficult bit knitting up the, the military side with the civilian insurance and freight company side I mean talk about how war is now a whole of society affair we're about to see that in the insurance market how do you then make it work if both sides say yep yeah, we'll, we'll take a will clear a path, a D de- demine a path um, that could be enforced by Turkey, for example, to make sure that Ukraine aren't, aren't getting weapons in that way. But then which civilian insurance company is going to take the risk? So that would be an interesting aspect to look at. But no, I think this is just the next stage in Russia's grain weaponization strategy. We should expect more attacks on Odessa. There'll be a, a stray something that hits a ship, I'm sure, in the, in the Black Sea that Russia will claim was a legacy, Ukrainian mine. Um, But yes, we we should expect more to come there.
3: And just one more from me, Dom. As Sophie was saying, it's been a couple of weeks since we've heard from you. And obviously many of our regular listeners have been desperate to hear your voice once again. And and now we have you. Is there anything else that, that struck you about the last couple of weeks? Any stories that you thought that were particularly interesting, big or small, that caught your eye that you wanted to comment on?
4: I think the big story for the last few weeks has been the effect of HIMARS and the the other multiple launch rocket systems that have been flowing in from the west. I mean, the the accuracy, the range is impressive. The accuracy is just off the clocks. I mean, that that really has brought the weight of fire coming back from the Russian side down to a a trickle, unlike anything it was a few weeks ago. And that has allowed Ukraine time to, to plan, time to take a breath as well, and also time to plan about how they want to, how they want to prosecute this war, and I think the, the measure of how serious the introduction of HIMARS and other similar systems have been is um, Sergei Lavrov's comment that um, you know if you can if you keep continuing to supply these munitions then we'll we'll just we'll keep going and we'll have we'll, we'll broaden the aims of this military operation. I mean, it's like it's so again, it's just so boring. It's like is that the best you can come up with? It's like it's like some sort of really bad Scooby-Doo episode where, where Lavrov's saying, oh, if it wasn't for you pesky kids with your high Mars, we would have succeeded by now. I mean, it just, it's really, really dull. But I think the introduction of that weapon system, there, there is no silver bullet, there is no one weapon system that's going to win this or lose it for either side. But that has made a marked difference and it gives strategic space to, to think and plan for, for Ukraine. And I think that's going to continue.
2: Thanks, Dom. I'm conscious that we don't want to keep you guys for too long before you have to make that long drive to Kyiv. But I am interested to hear if there's anything else that you want to say before you go about maybe the week that you're planning, what you're planning to do, and then we will leave you guys to to get on the road as we know we're, we're keeping you.
0: I'm just looking over the incredibly kind Ukrainian man you who know, brought us over the border in his car is, is looking at us. So we'll have to make this very, very brief because you can't cross the border on foot, you have to be in a car. So we're incredibly grateful to Andrew, so thank you, Andrew. This week, as Dom said, he'll be sort of interviewing all the big cheeses, your so your you, you, you ministers, that sort of thing. I'll be they, they come from we'll, be, we'll be spending. I'll be spending a bit more time, quickly on the ground, talking to Ukrainians and understanding what life is like in Kiev and the surrounding towns and areas at the moment. Yes, I think that's probably um, every, everything from us. The air conditioning has gone off in the car, so I think we might go wave to Andre and say thank you, thank you very, very much for stopping, and then on to Vladimir and on to uh, on to Kiev. But listeners, I would say you've. It's a shame we're not in the high car because you've missed uh, Dom Nichols' masterclass and shouting at the cars.
2: Thank you so much, David and Dom, in safe drive.
0: Thanks, guys. Stay safe in London and we'll speak soon. Bye-bye.
2: Safe journey. So David and Dom are on their way, but that doesn't mean that this episode is over. We are now going to do what we would normally do on an episode of Ukraine The Latest and discuss the latest updates from the front lines because although we do have David and Dom in Ukraine, we don't want to um, stop reporting the news as it happens. So, Francis Durnley, you're here to do that for us today. Can you give us a sense of the most important strategic updates over the weekend?
3: Sure. Well, thanks, Sophie. Uh, obviously, anything that I say will pale in comparison to the significance of what David and Dom are doing this week. But I think it's important in in what is actually a very significant week for various reasons to, to give these updates. So, first of all, already, as, as as Dom and Sophie were speaking about earlier, the war entered its sixth month on Sunday. And we are finally seeing some of the early signs of this long awaited counterattack that, of course, we've been talking about on the podcast now for several weeks. Indeed, Vladimir Zelensky has said that his forces are advancing, quote, step by step into the occupied southern region of Kherson. And obviously, this is a city that, that fell to the Russians early on in the war and sits on a very strategically significant location so we'll have to be obviously monitoring that very closely over the coming days and indeed UK defence officials are already reporting heavy fighting near that city. It would be a huge strategic and symbolic coup for the Ukrainians if they were able to seize back that city but I'll say it's too early to gauge whether that will be something that is short-term or a long-term aim for the Ukrainians given that actually I think it was last week or the week before last that a, a spokesperson for the Ukrainian government said they intended it to recapture that city by September so obviously we don't know if that is a strict deadline or whether that's um sort of overly ambitious or or, or actually trying to uh, under promise and and, and over deliver so that's the significance on the counter-attack element um, in terms of Russian offenses there was significant Russian shelling happening in the north south and east we understand and indeed uh, to to, to continue what Don was saying there. Zelensky has made some very interesting remarks about the air defense systems required by Ukraine to stop the Russians from striking cities that are quite far currently from the front line. Indeed, he's told the Washington Post over the weekend that while the high mobility uh, artillery, the high Mars from the West are welcome, the forces that he has need air defense weapons to deter the Russian strikes. And indeed, they haven't received enough of those from Western allies. Indeed, the U.S. and Germany pledged to send that equipment, but it's not yet arrived. Some other insight, interesting insights from Zelensky in that interview is about the artillery shell numbers that he cites. So he says the number of artillery shells Ukraine fires daily has increased from around 1,000 to 2,000 to 6,000, which, of course, is good news. We've spoken in the past about this huge discrepancy in numbers of artillery shells between the Russians and the Ukrainians. So clearly getting artillery numbers up for the Ukrainians has been a priority. He said that Russia used to fire 12,000 shells a day, but this number is now decreasing amid shortages. In addition, he revealed as well that at the peak of fighting, Ukraine was losing up to 200 troops a day, which was the number that we were reporting, although obviously that was uncertain. But now he's claiming that the daily fatalities have fallen to around 30, as ever need to treat any numbers such as this with skepticism, but um, still that is, I think, significant that that's what he is saying, given the context that we've discussed in the past, which is this uncertainty, I think, within the Ukrainian leadership about whether to be perhaps honest or maybe even exaggerate some of the losses as being a means of mobilizing Western support and emphasizing the seriousness of the situation, or whether actually by exaggerating any figures, it encourages the West to see potentially Ukraine as a losing struggle. I think that's been an internal debate and it would appear now that they are trying to suggest that situation has calmed down um, and that that, that clearly as they've launched this counterattack, that they are in a strong position. Finally, President Zelensky went on to say that a ceasefire with Russia, which does not allow Ukraine to reclaim occupied territory, would be unacceptable. So reiterating his very strong line that he has been saying since the very beginning. Consciously, I'm talking quite a lot here, Sophie, so do feel free to jump in if you've got any thoughts. Otherwise, I'll I'll continue and talk about the, the two other very significant front lines in this war, which is food and energy.
2: I would be interested to hear about the, the grain deal, because Don was mentioning that earlier and the significance of it. We've seen it coming, but we've already had some scepticism this morning, as you said earlier, that it might have been broken.
3: Well, yes. So uh, obviously, over the course of the weekend, we saw the deal be finalised, a very curious sight, um, seeing Russian representatives shaking hands with, with Turkish representatives and, of course, UN officials. I mean, it was quite striking to me that only a few months ago we were saying that Russia would be such a prior state potentially that that nobody would want to be seen shaking hands. So it was quite noticeable. I thought that 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 has um, obviously changed. And obviously in the same week as well, when uh, President Putin was meeting with President Ertikin, of course, a NATO member and the Supreme Leader of Iran, just I think that's a significant development. And indeed, a lot of the developments on this grain issue, I think, should be seen in that context, which is that whilst it is far from being altruism, from the Russian state here. They are trying to uh, reconnect with the international community to show that they are not diplomatically isolated. They're also, of course, trying to benefit financially from this. The deal that was struck in Istanbul on Friday to lift the blockade of Ukrainian ports will boost the Kremlin treasury, undoubtedly at a time when, of course, its coffers have been severely weakened by the war. But also, and this is what James Kilner argues in a piece for us, I think very um, accurately, is it enables Russia to grandstand in Africa as the sort of continent's saviour. We've talked a lot in the past about the ramifications of the food crisis on Africa. And indeed, it would appear that the line now Russia put out is basically they're say, saying that they are the savior of, of 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 many thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands of, of African lives by striking this deal um, at time of war. And of course, Russia have a lot of influence, such as does China in Africa. So this is an attempt by them to underline that support rather than it being in reverse and then potentially taking the blame for that. In terms of the deal itself and getting this grain out from the Black Sea ports, obviously this is part of a broader strategy of the UN and other powers to ease the global food shortages and the cost of living crisis in Europe and elsewhere. But as I was talking about, and as you asked about, there was a Russian missile strike on Odessa over the weekend, almost immediately as it was struck. And I think, again, this just speaks to the fact that for the Russians, diplomacy is a weapon. It is uh, something that they will use to buy time and something that will often then be, be, be quite often broken. This is straight from the, from the Russian playbook. And so I don't think it should come as a huge surprise. Clearly, the, the grain export issue is still holding at the moment that the deal that was struck. But I think that there will be some more twists and turns to come on this. But hopefully that answers your question.
2: Certainly does. And, and, and another issue just that we've been discussing for weeks and weeks now is energy. I know over the weekend, France came out with comments about the gas supply in Europe and exactly what would happen if Russia turned off the taps. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
3: Yes. Well, again, this is another ongoing saga in, in the war. And of course, I've spoken a lot on this podcast about Germany and the situation that's happening there from turning off light, street lighting, rationing energy. And I spoke, I think it was on Friday or perhaps Thursday last week, about this strategy pursued by the European Union of setting out uniform targets of the reduction of gas consumption in Europe, regardless of any one country's reliance on Russian oil and gas. And indeed, you can imagine that this has been rather controversial to say the least. Why should a country that has not been reliant on Russian gas still be reducing its consumption by 15%? It's considered very, very unfair. And unexpectedly, there has now been some developments in this space. So France has come out saying it is against this strategy of uniform gas reduction in Europe, against the setting of uniform targets. It says that export capabilities of each country must be taken into account and effectively saying that, that they would battle against this move by the Commission, which is interesting given that usually France and Germany are the shapers of, of the EU policy. So clearly this speaks to the disagreements there. Spain, Portugal, and Greece were also among those countries that are openly hostile to the proposal, but it's France that is among several more countries to express reservations. And of course, being one of Europe's major economies, no doubt this will make bureaucrats in Brussels sort of wake up and, and, and take notice of this. But of course, we haven't heard yet what their response is. And I think that they will be pretty firm on this because they don't want to show that there is quite perhaps as much disagreement in Europe as there currently is.
2: Thank you, Francis. I know we've raced through the update today after that um conversation with David and Dom in Ukraine, but there is one final, very significant update certainly for us here in the UK that's just broken in the last hour or so, and that is in relation to the Eurovision song contest, which obviously Ukraine won this year in 2022. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's happened there?
3: Well, yes, a bit of a lighter story on which to end. So we understand that the UK will now host Eurovision in 2023 on behalf of Ukraine. Tim Davey, the Director General of the BBC, has said, and I quote, it is a matter of great regret that our colleagues and friends in Ukraine are not able to host the 2023 Eurovision Song Contest. Being asked to host the largest and most complex music competition in the world is a great privilege. The BBC is committed to making the event a true reflection of Ukrainian culture alongside showcasing the diversity of British music and creativity. And indeed, we're expecting there to be lots of cities that will make bids for that. And I think it's just the reason it's worth mentioning is, of course, that there are so many different fronts of this war, military, energy, food, but also the the information battle and the battle for hearts and minds, which, uh, as, as we've spoken about many, many times, the Ukrainians have been particularly successful at mobilizing on social media and everything else. And clearly the Ukrainian victory in the Eurovision Song Contest ha- was a, a big part of, of, of showing the wider world and also in Europe that Ukraine is not alone. And so I think that it's, it's right to mention it. It may for some people just seem like a sort of frivolous uh, competition that's rather rather silly, but actually it's viewed by hundreds of millions of people around the world and is a part of the cultural calendar. And so this will no doubt be of significance. And I hope that um, the UK does it uh, does it justice.
2: Yes, we will. We will obviously keep everyone updated, not just on the plans for Eurovision, but on Britain's relationship with Ukraine, as we have heard that sources are saying that Boris Johnson will go out one more time as well as his premiership comes to an end. So we will keep people updated on that. I think, Francis, unless you have anything more to say, that is the end of a jam-packed episode. Did you have anything else you wanted to leave our listeners with?
3: Well, I should say that I hope to go to Eurovision. Uh, it's never been hosted by the UK in my, in my life. Actually, no, that's not quite true. I think we won in 1997, didn't we? So it has been hosted once uh, in my lifetime, but I would int- intend to go and obviously seeing Ukraine being at the front and centre of that will be part of my motivation to do so. So if anyone from the U- from Eurovision is listening to this, then do please get in touch. I'd love a ticket, as I'm sure many <laughs> of us would.
2: Ukraine, the latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. David and Dom aim to join us every day, live from Ukraine. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. And if you're in Ukraine... Keep an eye out for our two intrepid reporters. Thanks to Louisa Wells, Giles Gere and Carla Abreu for producing this episode.
4: And
1: one huge mention must go to Andrew Diminchenko, a businessman from Kiev who, seeing us at the border without a car, unable to get into the country, picked us up and has taken us to Lutz and is now taking us to Kiev.
0: Andre, thank you so much for your kindness. It's hugely appreciated. He's smiling at us now. <laughs>